Genesis chapter 9, verses 1 through 17. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be good for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything, but you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning from every beast. I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as, ma as many as came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And when I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh and the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the, bow, when the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. You can have a seat. Stephen, I'm glad that Mads is so excited about the reading of God's word. That's a good sign. That's a good sign. Couldn't resist that. Uh, in December, the cover article of The Atlantic was entitled, The Last Children of Down Syndrome. The article starts in Denmark where we find out what's being discussed isn't some cure that they've discovered for Down syndrome, but prenatal screening for it. The result being that since 2004 in Denmark, 95% of babies who are presumed to have had Down syndrome have been aborted. In the 1970s, when this testing first began, the stated purpose of it was, quote, to prevent birth of children with severe lifelong disability. That honest terminology fell out of style and was replaced in the 1990s with the purpose, quote, to offer women a choice. The article goes on to remind us that in the 20th century, eugenics was mainstream scientific idea in our country. 
in the United States. 32 states had laws legalizing sterilization with the expressed purpose to improve the health of the nation by preventing the birth of people that might burden society, particularly the mentally disabled, the sick, the poor, and people of color. You might recoil at it now, 100 years later. But the truth is that 100 years ago, you likely would have supported it. It was the science. In fact, I found an article from the Topeka Capital Journal where there was an exhibit at a fair in Topeka for the purpose of testing people to see whether or not they should reproduce based on their physical, mental, psychological health. It was being celebrated. It's a marvel of scientific discovery. What started with forced sterilizations has morphed into more socially acceptable forms of birth control and also abortion, continuing to target the disabled, poor, and indeed people of color as well. The article, the article in the Atlantic does finally ask an important question. This is the question it asks. Who gets to decide whose lives have value? You see, science can tell us a great many things about the world God has made. But it can't really tell us what we should do about it. So there's a lot of confusion about what actions or decisions are life-giving versus which actions and decisions are life-taking. Do we consider why or what responsibility God has given us, human beings, to bring about a culture of life rather than a culture of death? We rightly, often in the church, we rightly condemn abortion. But I wonder, is our call merely to end abortion or is it to promote life? We criticize the intentions of people who have had or who support abortion when their intentions are putting their conveniences or their economics over the life of a human being. But consider many of our own reasonings for not having children or for our frustration with our kids that we already do have. And how oftentimes those frustrations or those reasons reflect the very same things. Our conveniences and our economics are lessened because of our children. I'm afraid that at the heart of the issue, even in the church, we find many of the same priorities that we find outside of the church. Now, you might say, but Cody, I, I haven't killed anyone. True. And I'm very glad for that. Don't hear me incorrectly. 
But I'm unsatisfied with Christians who think it's enough to not cause physical harm when their words cause emotional and spiritual harm and their hearts are out of sync with God's. I'm satisfied, I'm unsatisfied with the church where that's the case. See, Noah, Noah lived in a culture of death. The Bible tells us that much. God looked at the earth and he saw that it was corrupt and it was filled with violence. As man turned their backs on God and sought to rule themselves, the result was catastrophic. Our world today is filled with violence. We were reminded of that again this week. Undoubtedly, the last 100 years has been the most violent in the post-flood world. World wars, genocide, tens of millions of people aborted. As secular and humanistic thought increases and a careful examination and application of God's standards decreases even within the church, it's no surprise. Left to our own, we mess stuff up. Can we all admit that? Left to my own, I will screw it up every single time. But God was restoring the world in Genesis 8, and in in chapter 9, God does two things here, two very, very important things. In this first section of our passage today, God gives a blessing, a blessing that I want you to understand, and in the second section, God makes a very important promise. And so we're going to look first at his blessing and then at his promise. And from these, we see that the answer to the question of who gets to decide what life has value is very, very simple. What we find is this. God is the authority on life. God is the only authority on life, on what is life and what is not life. The first section of our text we find in verses 1 through 7. This particular unit of thought is marked out by the same statement at the beginning and at the end. If you look in your Bibles, you'll see this. It's very clear. It says, be fruitful and multiply. But the whole section, it begins with a blessing. God must bless Noah first. Understand, biblically, it's only by God's blessing that humanity can even have the ability to produce life. That it's only by God's blessing that anything, anything can produce life. You'll see that in Genesis 1, and you see that again here in Genesis 9. And then the command is given, be fruitful and multiply. I've blessed you, humanity, you are blessed. And now I give you the responsibility to produce life, to do this command. It is wonderful that God does not command us to do things he has not blessed us to do. And this isn't a new command. God first gave it to Adam, as I was alluding to. And in this recreation of things, God reaffirms this command. Be fruitful and multiply. Even though the multiplication of man produced a multiplication of wickedness on the earth, right? That's what we saw in the last few weeks. 
God purposes still to fill the earth with those who bear his image. This is an important realization. God as creator and humans as God's image bearers are essential to a Christian understanding of the value of life. Understand, what I'm saying is this. We cannot, as Christians, understand the value of life unless we understand the doctrine of God creating everything and the idea that we as human beings are created, every single human being, in his image to carry his image and bear it to the world. While we as Christians ought to understand it this way, this truth doesn't only impact Christians. In fact, this is a covenant that God has made with all people from Noah to now. Every single person who has lived on the earth. This is a covenant that God has made with them. Whether or not they choose to recognize God as God does not matter. It does not change the reality of the thing. We will all be held responsible for what we do with it. I've tried to explain this in in other sermons. If just because I decide that, that I don't think that there's a speed limit doesn't mean if I'm speeding down the highway, the police won't pull me over and give me a ticket, right? And just because you decide that God doesn't exist or you decide that his rules don't count don't, does not mean that he will not hold you responsible for those things. What's more, God's purpose of filling the earth with his image bears points to an underlying principle of Christian life, maybe the underlying principle of all of Christian life, that is the supremacy of God's glory in every single thing. Romans, the book of Romans, says that that anything that falls short of God's glory is sin, and it also tells us that the result of sin is death. Thus, anything that glorifies God, conversely, brings about life. In short, our life is to glorify God, and whatever glorifies God actually brings us life. I want you to understand that. Your life Its purpose is to glorify God, and whatever in the world glorifies God, that is the thing that will bring you life. Only anything that does not glorify God will inevitably bring death. God begins to put some flesh on the bones of what that looks like. As God gives us some provisions and some prohibitions, or he gives Noah some provisions and prohibitions, just as he did to Adam in the garden, but they've been altered somewhat in the post-flood world. Let's look at this. In the garden, Adam was given dominion over animals, but not as food. All the trees were good for food, except for one. 
Here, Noah is given not just the green plants, but every living thing to eat. Animals are given to humanity to help them in their effort to be fruitful and multiply. With one significant exception, mankind is not to eat an animal with its blood. This is not rooted in some sort of mystical nature of blood or that blood is unhealthy for them even. Rather, we're told it's because God has given that creature life and that life matters to God and we ought to be reminded of that. We ought to remember that. Everything's value is not inherent to it but it's derived from its creator. God is the only thing that has value in and of himself. Every other value only comes from him. Creation that doesn't have life in it, rocks and plants and water, etc., have a certain amount of value because God created them. Living creatures have more value because God has given them life. But humans have imminent value as verses 5 through 6 tell us. Because mankind bears the very image of God, which is something that nothing else in creation does. Nothing else. From that reality comes the only legitimate and consistent basis for human, va- human, human rights. Understand, the only legitimate, the only consistent The only stable foundation for human rights is the image of God and man. What is sad and upsetting is without this basic theological grounding, our culture often turns these things upside down in their thinking. For instance, oftentimes we begin thinking that an animal has the same rights as a human. You've heard You've heard someone call their dog's children, right? Oh, look, it's my kid. Fido, whatever. It's typically meant to be a cute joke. Of course, people aren't actually confusing their labradoodle with a human being. But it isn't human, it isn't humorous that many in our culture would be morally outraged if we were killing puppies, but not morally outraged by killing babies. These verses address this. Simply put, they tell us, do not kill people. But there's more depth to it. Three times it says, God will require a reckoning. I will require a reckoning. I will require a reckoning. I will require a reckoning for human life. While God has given mankind authority over the rest of creation, even over other living creatures, he reminds us that only God has authority over human life. What God says goes. And he will will hold us accountable to that. The point is emphasized even more by the fact that that it says that God will hold even animals accountable for killing a human being. Do you get this? That the image of God in man is so important that he says, even if an animal kills a human, I will hold that animal responsible. 
And the just punishment for taking the life of someone else is your life being taken. Anything less than this would be to devalue the image of God in the one who was murdered. Now, listen, I don't have enough time this morning to talk about all the ins and outs of this. But we must distinguish here between the principle of a thing and its practice. The principle of capital punishment is clearly biblical. Even if the practice of it in our country and in other countries around the world has not been. But just because something hasn't been practiced justly doesn't mean we toss it out. If it's biblical, then we must keep it and reform its practice. We must work for it to be done in the way that God desires it to be done. The Bible gives us guidelines elsewhere. We should seek to follow those as best as we can. Listen, we live in an atmosphere of blanket statements and polarized positions, but this is a complicated issue, as is a lot of issues nowadays, and blanket statements rarely suffice. But it is not inconsistent with the culture of life. Capital punishment is not inconsistent with the culture of life. On the contrary, the principle, I would argue, biblically, is essential to it. I'd like to make one more observation about our responsibility to produce life. It ought to be typical that we produce life literally. What I mean is Christians, or, or I should say, what I mean is children are a life-giving blessing. That's what the Bible says. Now, I want to be sensitive in how I explain this observation because this can be a very sensitive and emotional topic. When you start talking about children, I understand that it gets very personal. I remember as a youth pastor, I would often get assigned Mother's Day as the week that I had to preach for whatever reason. It's like three, four years in a row. Hey, Mother's Day is on you, Cody. And I, and I quickly realized why I got that Sunday, because it didn't matter what I said, m there were people who would get up and leave the sanctuary crying in the middle of my sermon. It did not matter how gently I remarked, it didn't matter how I portrayed things. It's an emotional topic. It's an emotional topic for moms who have kids, for moms who have lost kids, for moms who haven't been able to have kids. But we can't let even the most emotional of topics keep us from searching out and speaking the truth of God's word. My intent in these next few moments isn't to make anyone feel bad for the things they chose to do or choose not to do, and certainly for what they just weren't able to do. My intent is to push each of us toward God and his word being the authority in every single dimension of our lives and being the authority 
on life. I know for myself personally that I've held positions in the past, in the not really that distant past, that today would not be, I would not hold the same position because of further examination of God's word. And so I want you to know there's a lot of grace in this as we search the scriptures and try to discover what it is that God's word is telling us. So with that said, I will confess to you that in the past, I was the guy who, when the 15-passenger van rolled up to church, I rolled my eyes and I said, oh, here comes one of those families. You know, if you've been in church long, you know those families, right? Some of you have been those families. But I want to say that was wrong. It was wrong of me to think and to say that. It was wrong of me to have that opinion. You can't find that attitude about children and families anywhere in Scripture. It's just not there. And we shouldn't find that attitude anywhere in the church. That being said, that's also not reason to criticize the family with one kid or the family with no kids. There are a variety of reasons that a couple may not have kids yet or may not have kids at all. Some of those reasons can be very painful ones, I recognize. Some of those reasons are things that I've walked through with some of you. And we all should be able to celebrate with those who are celebrating, to weep with those who are weeping. My concern, though, in this, first and foremost, is our heart attitude as believers to children. And whether or not it lines up with God's expressed attitude in Scripture. And two things we see in the Bible. First, that it is normative for married couples, for married yeah, couples to have children. That is a normative thing. Second, children are always seen as a gift and a blessing. As we observed, even when the multiplication of people became a multiplication of sin on the earth, God still looks at kids and describes them as a gift. And that also works the other way. When sin results in multiplication, in other words, if you need me to be crystal clear, when children are conceived outside of the covenant of marriage, the child should never be considered a mistake. Never, never, never. That should not be words that come out of our mouth. The problem is the sin. It's not the child. The child is a blessing to us in spite of the sin. It should be a red flag if our heart attitude towards children is different than this. 
If, our heart, if, if you are sitting here this morning and you're saying, well, that's, that's not my heart attitude towards children, that should raise a red flag in your mind to examine your heart, to get on your knees in prayer, to get in community with other believers in conversation and go, man, what? to get in God's word and read it and say, what is wrong in my heart because God's word is not wrong? And I know with certainty, and I say this with sorrow, I know with certainty that the way in which at least some people in our church have spoken about their children and about parenthood has deterred others from having children. That should sober us. That should humble us. And that should lead us to corporate repentance. Now, does that mean you must have kids or you need to have more kids? Not necessarily. Listen, if you want to have children but cannot, that doesn't mean that you're in sin. In fact, the childless couple whose heart reflects God's in seeing their children or seeing children as a blessing is more obedient than the parent of 10 children who does not see them as a blessing. We know that God calls some people to a life of singleness, so having children is not an absolute. Additionally, there could be any number of reasons or circumstances why a couple may delay having kids or possibly not have kids at all. What seems clear to me in Scripture, however, is that the perceived inconvenience of children is not a valid reason for not having them. For these reasons, I believe, and I assume that this might be a minority opinion, I believe that birth control ought to be the exception for the Christian and not the rule. As a Christian couple, as a church, if birth control is being used, we ought to investigate it carefully considering whether that form of birth control aligns with Scripture. We should not assume that the inventors of these birth control metal, me, uh, methods or the medical practitioners share the same biblical ethic or have taken the time to examine these practices through the lens of Scripture. I don't say that as an indictment. I say that humbly knowing that I have used forms of birth control that if I could go back in time, I would not use again. I could not in good conscience knowing God's word do the same. What I'm asking you to do, church, is to take the time to not assume, but to take the time to actually examine, to think, to evaluate according to scripture, prayerfully, how you view these things. 
Additionally, I think we ought to consider other avenues of being pro-children. Things like foster care and adoption. This brings up one more related topic that I'd like to touch on briefly. Not only should Christians better examine the forms of birth control they use, but they should also not assume that every method of fertility treatment, every method that helps someone to have a child is necessarily in line with Scripture. I'm going to speak specifically to one, and I understand again that I may be treading on sensitive water here. Or sensitive ice, however that phrase goes. One example is IVF treatment. Until just a few years ago, I'll be honest, I never questioned it. Uh, Maybe I thought, oh, this seems a little costly. Maybe I questioned whether or not doctors were a little too greedy. Maybe I questioned whether or not it would be wiser to adopt a child with those funds because certainly could with how much it costs. But who can fault someone for wanting to be pregnant? Wanting to be pregnant is a good desire, and it is a good desire. But a good end doesn't justify a bad means. As Christians, we need to understand that. A good end does not justify a bad means. It doesn't. Do we consider a procedure? Should we consider a procedure where, in the main, embryonic life is created knowing that the intent is to destroy it? Where eggs are fertilized so that the embryos can be tested for how healthy that child might be and then disposed of if they're deemed not good enough. What is the difference between that and abortion or forced sterilization of people who we've determined their genetics aren't good enough? Where selective reduction means that more embryos are implanted knowing that the extras will be destroyed to elevate the chance of one of the others living. We're more, <laughs> we're simply more embryos are frozen than, than kids, uh, than, the, than the parents are willing to even have kids. So they know that they're going to decide to destroy, to dispose of some of that life, some of those human beings, or else donate them to science, which is by any other Definition, human experimentation, or worse yet, I found there's a place in Australia who will turn your embryos into jewelry so you can wear your children. How's that any different than having sex, having already decided that if you end up pregnant, you will abort that kid? As my heart breaks, if, listen, if you've considered or even if you've used IVF 
My intention is not to make you feel shame or guilt over this. It really, it is not. My, I want people to understand. I didn't understand. In fact, my understanding has come. My views on IVF have changed as I've talked to Christians who have done IVF, IVF and afterwards realizing what was happening have said, no, I would never advise someone to do this as a Christian. My plea is do your research, whether it be birth control or fertility treatment or whatever it is, do your research and carefully and consider God's word. Science can tell us a great many things, but it cannot tell us what to do or why we should do it. Our morality and our ethics must be based in God's word. I wish I'd been more diligent in these things. Whether it feels like it or not, listen, whether it feels like it or not, there are worse things in life than having a kid. A lot worse. And, and listen, as hard as this is, whether it feels like it or not, there are worse things than not having a kid. What we know is there is a command for every Christian to produce life, not just through physical or biological children, but to produce spiritual children. That is all of our command. And that ought to influence how we think about kids. That's a responsibility and a joy we can participate in whether or not we have biological children as well. If we can't or don't have children, we can rightly mourn that reality. Listen, if, if you can't have kids, you can rightly mourn that reality. We want to mourn that with you. But we don't need to despair we don't, because God can still use us to produce life in this world. He intends to. And if we do have children, then it frames how we parent, right? Our primary responsibility as parents is not to get our children to adulthood or even to make them good little citizens. It's to show them Christ, to proclaim the gospel to them and to teach them how to obey it. That is our call. That is our primary responsibility as parents. If we can have kids, if you can have kids, but you haven't yet, or you haven't had more, listen, I want to ask you this, what better opportunity do we have to spread the gospel but 18 years of the same person being under your roof? When Christians choose not to have kids, they are missing what is likely their best opportunity in their life to spread the kingdom of God. But even... If you can't have kids, or even if they've moved out and they don't live into your roof anymore, even if that opportunity you feel like has passed and you, and you look back and you go, man, I just, I didn't do the job I wish I would have done there. I want you to know, we still have opportunities to reproduce life in God's kingdom. Next month, 
We're going to be going through a series in the book of Mark. For eight weeks, we're going to preach through Mark from mid-February to Easter. And during that series, I'm going to be asking, challenging you, I guess, to do something. I'm going to challenge you to invite one or two people to participate in a core group. We'll call it a core group, a group with you where you read through the book of Mark, where you pray together, you have some accountability, some time to get to know each other more deeply. I'm going to talk about that more on the 31st, in the evening of the 31st when we have uh, all church meeting here, but I just want to put that on your radar. What if just simply inviting one or two people to sit down and open up the Bible and read through a gospel with you once a week for eight weeks? It's an opportunity to produce life, to spread the gospel, to proclaim the kingdom. God has given us life. He is profoundly pro-life and he is the authority on life, yet he gives us a responsibility to produce life on the earth. What a blessing this is. Unfortunately, the generations from Adam to Noah failed and the generations from Noah to today have failed, right? And the reality is that we continue to fail. Too often our culture is marked by death, even pursuing death rather than producing life. Chapter 8, verse 21 of Genesis says it clearly. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth, and that still is true. What hope then is there for the earth? You see the second half of our passage this morning, it foreshadows our only hope. And that is that God promises to preserve life. Yes, he gives humanity the responsibility to produce life, but he promises to preserve life. God makes a promise to never again destroy all of life through a flood. He encourages sinful man to multiply and promises to preserve their flawed lives from the wrath of God in another flood because he has a plan. And the second section includes the repetition of three statements at the beginning and at the end. Again, the first few verses state that God is establishing a covenant, an unconditional covenant, this one, meaning that we have no responsibilities in it, that God will do it just because he says, nor is there anything then that we can do to break this covenant, which is good because we fail a lot. It's good because God is unchanging. And so we will never change. And then it says that there'll be a sign of this covenant. And it says that this covenant will last to all future generations. And we see that in the last two verses, the same pattern is repeated in reverse order. It says the covenant will be eternal, that there will be a sign, that God will establish it and it will be set in stone. Or perhaps I should say it will be set in the clouds. Because the sign of the covenant is a rainbow. And the word for bow here, I want you to understand, is the same word in the Bible that it uses for a warrior's bow, like a bow and arrow. Humanity's sin put them in war with the holy God and led God to shoot the arrow of his wrath on them in means of a flood. But now he has hung that bow up. He will never again destroy the earth in this way. And even when the clouds 
of life come in. And things look ominous and grim. The rainbow reminds us of God's mercy. For he doesn't hang it up because we are now without sin, because we now get it right, or because the world is no longer corrupt. He hangs his bow up as a reminder to us that even though we actually do deserve judgment, he is merciful. He alone is the authority on life. He alone is the author of life, and he ultimately will preserve it through his mercy and for his glory. This doesn't mean that no judgment will ever come. While another flood is off the table, God promises that there will be a final judgment. But God's mercy is shown in this, that just as that bow is hung, pointed to heaven, God will pierce his own son, place the wrath of his judgment on him for the sins of his people in order to reveal the full measure of his mercy for us. See, every time we look at a rainbow, it ought to remind us that we deserve wrath. But we've been given mercy so that we can know that God is faithful to his promises. But here's the question. Do you trust? When you look at that rainbow in the sky, do you trust that God is faithful? Do you trust that God will keep his promises? Not in, not in a general way, not in a generic way, but personally in your own life. Do you trust him when it comes down to you? When you're faced with a critical decision like having a child, do you trust him? When you're faced with something unexpected like a pregnancy or a miscarriage, do you trust him? Do you trust him that he has a plan and he will make good on his promise? Perhaps, perhaps some of you have heard this story before, but I think it bears repeating as I read that article from the Atlantic, I couldn't help but remember my own struggle with what life has value to me. You see, even for people who would shudder at the thought of aborting a child just because they have Down syndrome, they're often surprised as they talk to Amanda and I that we would adopt Silas, that we would willingly choose to bring into our family a child with Down syndrome. And I have to confess to you that, that in fact, I am no saint. When the decision was first placed before us, I've got to be honest, I struggled with it. You see, I think humans have a tendency towards risk aversion, right? The worst case scenario carries a undue weight in our minds. And I know it did for me. When we, when I found myself in this place with very little medical records and an outdated picture and someone asking, will you adopt him? I thought, I began to think to myself things like, what if there's a heart defect? Can I afford it? 
What if he needs constant care? Can I pull that off as a, as a pastor? What if he always lives with us? What will that cut out of my life, my life? How will that change my life? How will that diminish my life? How will that affect my life? And I nearly aborted our adoption. It became about risking, it became about not risking the life I had or the vision of the life I thought that I wanted rather than reaching towards the will of the one who gives life, rather than reaching towards the will of the one who is the authority on life, who is life. And it took him showing me that my life, my very next breath, was in his hands, whether I wanted to admit it or not. That there was no guarantee that I would make it to the next day or the next year or the next decade. But what did he want to do with my life today? And so in faith, with no guarantees, with no facts or figures, with no empirical evidence, trusted. Except I did have one truth that God is who God says he is and that God keeps his promises. And as it turned out, the things I cared so much about in that moment and in that season, they don't hold so much weight for me anymore. As it turns out, the Silas, even with the struggles he brings, and let's just be honest for a minute, if you have children, every child brings struggles. Can I get an amen? Yet he brings far more life to our family than anything he's taken away, than anything that my vision for life could have ever brought. That I gladly make whatever sacrifices we've made, if I can even call them sacrifices, again. You see, Jesus said, whoever tries to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the gospel that Jesus gave his life to give us life and defeated death with death. This is the only hope we have for a world consumed by the culture of death, faith. Faith alone in Christ alone, in his gospel and his grace and his authority over our lives and his authority to define life based on his character, not our whims and desires. Friends, I beg you, don't hold on to something you can't keep anyway. Produce life in whatever place the author of life has you. Let me pray. God.